Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and uh, we're glad to have you with us again. And uh, it's the whole crew here today, and we're going to introduce ourselves in a minute. But guys, I realized just the other day that we've been at this for a year. Mm, wow. I think this is like episode 56 or something. Huh? Uh, maybe maybe that's wrong. We need the fact checkers out there to correct us. You know, occasionally we do say things that are not correct. <laughs> often, uh, speak often, for yourself. <laughs> often we correct each other in the course of the show, but that just is because we do almost zero prep. We just kind of come from wherever we are and we sit down and and uh, I think most of the time we do catch each other, but occasionally yeah. someone catches us from someplace else. I'm Never Glenn. I'm glad you Never got Glenn. me last week on. I don't think it's ever happened to Glenn. I'm glad you got me last week on Warfield and Whitfield, though. <laughs> I've, n- I've not heard the end of it from uh, <laughs> my colleague, Frank Mullis. <laughs> yeah, initially when you said, you know, B.B. Uh, Warfield, I was like, wow, now, now we're getting kind of crazy. But anyway, but, uh, you know, uh, Whitfield's bad enough. So... Uh, Today, uh, well, let, why don't we introduce ourselves first? Uh, I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I've wrote things. I've written things. And now you turn, Tom. Uh, Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Well, today is my day, and uh, it's really been taken out of my hands. I actually wanted to talk about something else. I've got this idea that I'd like to kind of go through seminal texts in the sort of the revival of paleoconservatism mid-20th century. (laughs) So I was thinking, you know, we could, well, we did Robert Nisbet, and I was thinking maybe we could do Richard Weaver. So so I was thinking of that. But then there was this huge surge of, of demand for intersectionality. On my Facebook page, I said, hey, you know, what do you guys, you know, think about intersectionality uh, as a subject for the podcast? And I thought, you know, this could be something we do maybe a few episodes down the road. But there was, uh, you know, like this huge, like, firestorm of comments, you know, over 100. <laughs> and uh, so I said, okay, okay, I guess we got to do something on intersectionality. So we're going to do that today. But before we do, we want you to know that uh, we are looking to, once again, upgrade our game at the podcast we want to make a better show so uh we have are, are working on a uh a, a set of uh goals uh one of those goals is to have a, a new website that people can uh, access and, and get at our shows a little easier uh we also want to have a way for people to to interact with us that's a little easier for them we're just absolutely awful at the Facebook page thing that we have. We, we do have a Facebook page that we occasionally look at. And then there are like, I was last time I was there, there were like 30 un-responded-to you know, comments or something like that. I was like, man, we're bad. And then it, you go, you know how you go to the, 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 you know, the, the where you got like the main page for your, for your Facebook page? And it'll tell you how long it takes for them to respond. <laughs> it's like days. <laughs> you go to others and it's like minutes. It's for us, it's, it's, it, we're, we're not good. So we're looking to get some help in that area. And uh, anyway, uh, we're also looking to upgrade some of our equipment. So we're going to do another Kickstarter. About a year ago at this time, we had a Kickstarter that was a success. And it got us off the ground and running. And uh, we've been glad for what that uh, Kickstarter has funded, and we've, we're going to be able to build on it. Uh, but we're going to do another, and we're looking at the first Kickstarter we did. I think we were looking at like a five, like a five hundred dollar goal, very modest. We exceeded that by a few hundred dollars. This time around, we're probably going to be in the like two thousand to three thousand dollar range when everything. Again, not a huge, you know, thing. Not a huge Kickstarter campaign, but it'll help us do a number of things that we want to do, and we'll let you know more about those things as we get closer to kicking the Kickstarter off. But anyway, uh, let's jump into the subject of the day, and today's subject, as I noted, is intersectionality, and I went to that great resource on the web, Wikipedia. Now, I remember back in the day when people were very sort of jaundiced when it came to use of Wikipedia, but I think that... You know, it's become a, a much stronger resource as people have continued to refine it and, and so forth. So it doesn't get the same sort of eyebrow raise. Maybe it does in some circles. 
Maybe you still raise an eyebrow, Glenn. Not particularly. I mean, it's they've done multiple studies, and it's no less accurate than any other encyclopedia. Yeah, you know, you compare it to Britannica or, or any of those, it's, right. it's about the same. Yeah, so uh, the self-editing function, the, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so here is uh, the first sentence... Uh, in, you know, of course it's three lines because you can't talk about this kind of stuff with a lot of jar without a lot of jargon. <laughs> oh, yeah, jargon <laughs> is part of it. But anyway, so this is it. Intersectionality is a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of one's social and political identities, e.g., gender, race, class, sexuality, ability, ability. Oh, yeah. That's this an interesting one, isn't that? Body abled. Etc. But I'm thinking just ability in terms of actually being able to do the job. Well, yeah. actually, that's <laughs> we're going to get mean, there. They mean body. No, I know, but yeah. but, this, but the point is, though, is that this whole thing I'm going to get into that does undermine right that yeah. uh, might combine to create unique modes of discrimination. Doesn't sort of you know entertain the possibility that this could create unique modes of discrimination, which I think is what is occurring. Um, but anyway, uh, it uh, goes on to describe its roots of what's known as first wave feminism and. Uh, so on. Uh, we've talked uh, before as well about some of the uh, ideological and uh, philosophical underpinnings, sort of the metaphysical underpinnings of intersectionality. But anyway, so that's the topic of the day. Normally what this is used for in uh, the academy or in the politics or, or even in human resources is, is, is essentially you can acquire uh, sort of moral capital based on your status as an oppressed person. So, you know, for example, if you're a black man, you know, you've got, you know, one mark mm -hmm. that gives you a measure of moral status, moral, moral authority to speak to issues because you are oppressed as a black man. But if you're a black woman, mm -hmm. then now you've got two. You've got, you've got double. Now, if you're a black woman who's in a wheelchair, now you've got three. Now, if you're a black woman in a wheelchair who is transsexual who's actually a man pretending to be a woman now you got another you see how this kind of works you know you can next thing you know you're like the most authoritative person in the world and you, anything you say or at least this is you know as we ha having a little fun with this and it's sort of it it's sort of yeah but for each step away from the the societal power hierarchy you therefore d are supposedly to be granted a certain amount of moral power that makes up for that Distance and therefore you kind of it's it's a way of kind of redistributing power in mm. in, a, in a certain hierarchy of exclusion. Yes, yeah, right. the, the way I've I've always explained this is, um, you know, anybody who is working in this world views the entire universe as a zero sum game, yeah. and it's a zero sum game on pretty much all levels. So in this case, what we're dealing with is the issue of moral authority. If you oppress someone, you lose moral authority. But since it's a zero-sum game, the lost moral authority has to go somewhere, so it must go to the oppressed. So oppressors lose moral authority. Oppressed gain moral authority by virtue of that. And as a result, the more ways you're oppressed, the more moral authority you have, because you're getting it from multiple directions. And with that moral authority, and this is probably somewhere you're going to go with it, so I don't want steal, to steal the... The, the theme early on, but go, starts to become uh, other levels of authority, like interpretive authority. Yes. We're starting to see this in the STEM, STEM sciences and different things like this. For example, if you're Stephen Hawking, you have a brilliant mind, but you're a white European male. But on the other hand, you're disabled, and so you're, you have a certain amount of, you know... Um, marginalization because of that, but that didn't seem to hold him back in terms of his uh, his white male. <laughs> um, and so therefore, but, but if you are uh, one of these people who happen to be steps back in terms of social hierarchy and power, you've been excluded from the interpretive enterprise, so therefore the argument is that we should start to claim those voices as having the same level of voice as, say, a Stephen Hawking, if not more, in interpreting scientific reality, because those experiences have been one that have been not privileged or allowed to have a privileged place. And so what it does is it reduces all learning to 
to, to the same it's the same issue of power and, and balance. Look, that gets us to a couple of things that we've explored in the yeah. past. You, you brought uh, a book by Roger Lundin sometime yeah. back entitled From From Nature to Experience. Yeah. Now nature, what you're what you're you know looking at when you're looking at something that we call uh, that, uh, that's termed nature is we're looking at something that we all uh, have in common that we share in, mm -hmm. but it's also something that exists. A, in some sense, apart from us, mm -hmm. apart from our experience even, and it serves as a kind of measure or gauge for mm -hmm. us to, to determine whether or not something has uh, you know, different kinds of value. Uh, another way to talk about this is the dynamic of power and truth. Mm -hmm. In regard to this particular matter, uh, we're not talking about truth in the capital P sense. Right. We're talking about power in the capital P sense. Yeah. In other words, power is come to supplant, yeah. uh, we've lost our faith mm -hmm. in, uh, a, a, in, in realities that are, ex that are outside of our experience mm -hmm. and outside of our, our control uh, to gauge the value of our activities or to mm -hmm. determine the mm -hmm. relative worth of the various contributions that people make. Yeah. We're essentially back in Kant, yeah. but we're taking it one step further. Uh, Kant says that there are, are, in essence, two sides to the world. There's the noumena, which is the way the world is in and of itself, which is actually unknowable to us. And then there are the phenomena, which is the world as we experience it. Right. Well, if you add to that a perspectival part of the to the phenomena, what you get is the idea that nobody actually knows reality, but everybody brings their own perspective to it. Yeah, right. And... Further, the assumption is that there's no way of judging one perspective as intrinsically superior to another. Yeah. Therefore, it, the, because of the moral authority issue, the disadvantaged voices then have to be privileged. Right. This gets us to something that's referred to sometimes as standpoint theory, yeah. which is kind of getting at the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's it, it, yeah, in, in, in you know this is exactly I think what Lundin's book is up to is it's, it's it's showing this move through Emerson and through sort of the way it enters the the American um, the U.S. Uh, uh, you know kind of mindset. Um, but but yeah, one of the fascinating things going on here is of course one of the ways in which uh, as Chris was just mentioning that which is outside or another way we've always talked about the transcendental, the transcendent. Uh, transcendent here is not to be understood in contrast to that which isn't transcendent, the imminent, so much as that which is not reducible to anything other than itself. And it isn't reducible to our experiences of it. It transcends those. And see, this is why, um, th this is why the whole intersectional vision and the whole postmodern vision that, that kind of uh, shares a lot of the, the um, the worldview with it um, are completely locked in in themselves. They're completely imminent frames, right. and anything that is transcendent is merely trying to break out of the way that imminent frame is organized. Not anything. You're not dealing with something that is qualitatively different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, truth, beauty, and goodness—they don't have a place the same way they do in the like the classic Christian and the classic philosophical traditions. Um, because these things were true in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, I'll give you an example from the field of theology. Um, I, I, would, I showed you a, a little book here that uh, was written by someone, Grace Kim, and, uh, and uh, I, I can't recommend <laughs> We don't actually want we to read it. Actually, I don't care who wrote it. Um, it's called Intersectional Theology. So what is intersectionality? Well, of course, they want to do what is very common. They don't want to make any kind of metaphysical claim. They want to make a methodological claim. Intersectionality is a tool for analysis, right? As though those things don't have no have metaphysical basis. Right? Um, that takes into account the simultaneously experienced multiple social locations, identities, and institutions that shape individual and collective experience within hierarchically structured systems of power and privilege. Can these people make a single coherent statement? Listen, this is their, in other, other words, listen to this. Intersectionality is a lens for understanding how gender, race, social class, sexual identity, and other forms of difference work concurrently to shape people and in social institutions within multiple relations of power. And so, but what, what gets me is when we get over to their understanding, when they're describing this in relationship to theology, 
Now notice what they say. They, they, they're pulling the same stunt that everyone in this, this world who's developed it now. Theology is just following the order. So traditionally, theology has assumed a white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied subject with very little self-reflection on the impact of theologian's social location and theology. That's a chalk-loaded statement oh, yeah. that is really full of nonsense. Right. Um, first and foremost, traditionally, theology has assumed just about every tribe and nation because Christianity has come through just about every tribe and nation. Who, who is the most important theologian in the Western Christian tradition? And where are they from? Augustine. Africa. Augustine, who is from North Africa. Right. Um, there are multiple popes in the early church, ending with Galatius, who are Berbers. Uh, um, this John Calvin was in such pain because of, of well, I don't need to go into multiple it. multiple illnesses. Yet he dictated his commentary in Isaiah while he was in bed with tuberculosis. Yeah, but you see the thing. I would, the, the approach I would take to this this stuff is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. My approach would be the whole the whole uh, sort of enterprise of theology has been uh, historically, you know, in the in the early centuries coming to the limits of our ability to know as human beings. In other words, there's, no, there's been no claim yeah. that early theologians made that based on your social location, your class, your race, mm -hmm. or anything, that it would, you get, get superior insight yes, into so the nature well, of that, God. That was my next move, is that what <clears throat> happens here is their presupposition <clears throat> that that transcendence isn't a part of the Christian vision. Mm -hmm. So if, if there isn't a God whose reality basically exposes us in all of the sinfulness and all the privileges we have, right? I mean, what, what is St. Paul constantly teaching? Okay, those of you that are in positions of leadership, remember Christ and remember that you don't start eating your Eucharistic meal until even the poor are there, right? So these things were, are built into the fabric of real Christian, real Christian transcendence. But the point is, is that what, the, what they've done is made theology another point of perspective based on the social location and all these kinds of hierarchical power determinations. Because there's a hidden metaphysical assumption yes. that's effectively naturalism. Yes, right. exactly. It, it is a materialistic assumption that everything depends on human power relations. And then when you flip it to the classical Christian understanding, which is not a utilitarian view of God, but one that actually it exposes a person to God himself. Theology is pointing to the reality of God and saying this is the this is the price that's worth running for. And what does that do? It causes people properly is to put off themselves and put on Christ. It is a transforming thing. And so that all of these issues of improperly ordered sin are being exposed for the idols they are and being rewoven as the loves are restored. This can only happen because you're actually grappling with that which is the true God. And so what, what they are missing in this is that there is actually a, a, a you know, a Karl Barth called the Sache of Scripture. There is, a, there is a reality to which Scripture is pointing that isn't assimilatable to anything else because it is God. And it is that God that when we're in communion with it through Christ in Scripture, that as theology orients itself that way, it actually deals with these things that they want to deal with in an improper way in a, in, and, and a, play, a, a way that just reshuffles different types of oppression. Right. Yeah. And I have another. I'm all set for now. Yep. Thanks. Um, one of the things that that personally drives me crazy on the whole intersectionality thing, when it comes to the church, I mean, I understand this in the world, but when it comes to the church, in order to accept intersectionality, you have to accept a whole bunch of categories that are foreign to scripture. So, for example, race is not a biblical category. It, is, it just simply isn't there. And while we can argue, I think, properly, that race is one of the few things that actually qualifies as a true social construct. It doesn't have a real biological basis or anything like that. It, you know, so there is a social reality to it, but we need to subordinate the social reality to objective reality. And in scripture, the objective reality is that race does not exist, and biologically it doesn't exist either. Um, the other categories that they want to go to, where you're you're dealing with, um, well, okay, let, let, let's run through them. Race, not scriptural category. 
social status, um, you know, economic status, whatever. That's something that scripture acknowledges, but it's very clear that it isn't the rich that are the ones that that hold the whip hand, as it were. Um, so, you know, that doesn't really work either, not the way they want to use it. Um, or at least, well, at least there we can agree that there's a certain amount of critique. Sexual orientation, explicitly rejected in scripture. Well, actually, they don't even recognize sexual orientation. They only recognize sexual behavior. And that is explicitly rejected, and yet somehow it's got to take a privileged place. Um, you know, gender, that's recognized in scripture. I mean, but a, a lot of these things just simply don't make sense through a scriptural lens. And the way they're trying to use them, on some levels you can see a connection, but really very few. And the entire structure that says that this whole thing is built around power and power relations and so on, and that that is really the ultimate reality, which is what they're saying, without saying it. Right. That, from a biblical perspective, that is utter nonsense. Well, at a practical level, so we're looking at this at kind of the you know, 30,000 foot level, looking at you know, the assumptions, the, the, the questions begged, the, the metaphysics, that kind of stuff. But uh, at the other end of the, of, of the spectrum, I'd like to consider the practical implications. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about where is this generally being applied, to what is it being applied? Often it's being applied to government agencies, or it's being applied academic to institutions. academic institutions and jobs, right, churches, jobs, especially the uh, nonprofits. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's in this. It's in these realms. I'm going to disagree with especially the nonprofits. Okay. I think it's it's for-profit companies have bought into this wholeheartedly. Well, I think that the spread. But it's definitely impacted because grants are bound up with the whole. Well, I think that's yeah. part of it, but I also think in the world of uh, you know certain large corporations, not so much yeah. medium and small ones, but in large corporations, human resources and public image are going are, are sort of the the means by which, and then social media. I think a lot of this is capitulation mm -hmm. to social media, but but what we're dealing with here is is uh, developments which undermine or potentially undermine the capacity of institutions to apply standards to themselves. In other words, to bring about, you know, you know, to do the things that to, to, to reward the kind of work that needs to be rewarded in order for them to to do what they've been established to do. <laughs> you know, and getting it. So, um, at, you know, at what point do we say, you know, hey, it doesn't matter that you're the brightest guy in the room. The fact that you're white means that you 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 shouldn't be in charge. Yeah. The, the, you know this kind of thing. Yeah. Even the fact that I would make that kind of statement mm -hmm. in the minds of many people uh, is not uh, sound because there's no basis for making judgments, even about things as objectively meaningful historically as mathematics. It's, I wish I was joking about right. this, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. but mathematics and yeah. science. Yeah. So when you when we get to the point where you can't turn your light on. Yeah. And no one can fix your plumbing. You know, are we finally going to get to the place where we say, you know what, this has been a stupid idea? Or do you really want to drive over a bridge yeah. to put together by someone who doesn't believe math is objective? Did you remember uh, the, the bridge down in Florida? There was a, there was a bridge in Florida. <laughs> this, is, this is going to make me uh, just... Well, I've already alienated every feminist in the world. <laughs> but there was a there was a there was a woman who was a uh, an engineer who constructed a pedestrian bridge somewhere in Florida, and it collapsed. And uh, I can't remember, but I think there were several people that were injured, maybe even someone who died. But it more or less came out that this was an you know a uh, kind of a feminist theory bridge. I'm not, not, not joking. Caring, what, what is that? I can't remember what the one. That's out, out now. That's old school uh, feminism, you know, the bridge of caring. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess caring yeah, but, no know, but, the, but the idea was mm -hmm. that there was a certain set of values that had been objectified in the bridge. In other words, found expression in the bridge that, that uh, were rooted in a kind of feminist uh, ideology and were not actually based on, you know, the kinds of standards mm -hmm. that would normally apply to you know, work that you and I would do. <laughs> well, if, if, I, 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 if one of these shows, I'll bring this back up and I'll be able to tell people the date and the place and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. I, that, that's one that somehow went past me. I, didn't, I, I haven't heard yeah. of that one. 
Well, you're going to hear more about that kind of stuff <clears throat> because if stuff like you just read yeah. going on at Oxford in the sciences. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, it's 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 not enough that uh, we have homosexuals in the sciences, but they must be visible. Yes, the and they must be be impacting the interpretation, having privilege of per interpretation. And I, I, again, it just this is what happens when, and, and it, it, she puts it here in the same book, Intersectional Theology, in relation to theology. Just listen how they, they word this. Her quote, in other words, for most of Christian history, straight white male theologians have spoken for everyone else. Let's just say in the science, for most of Western science, straight white males have been practicing the sciences, right? And so therefore the sciences can't possibly benefit everyone because they're so biased towards straight white male people. Um, and the next thing is, as if their theologies do not reflect the bias of their own social privileges and power. Again, the presumption is is that's all that happens. Well, you know what's interesting about this, just as it occurs yeah. to me, that in the ancient world that would have been a demonstration of why I'm in charge. Yeah. In other words, the God's favor, straight white men. Yeah. Well, they, in, in, in Providence would have been very... I'm not even thinking Christian yeah. terms. Yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of the ancient world. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what, yeah. No, in the ancient world, they would have just said, shut up. Yeah, it's true. Sit down. Yeah. I'm in charge for a reason. Yeah. Well, it is. And, and it, it, you're right. It, and it, it definitely would have been understood that way. And power would have been understood in relationship to the one who takes charge. Right. Which brings into question, how did this intersectionality thing ever occur? See, I was setting this up. I know where you're going. Yeah, <laughs> but, but go ahead. Yeah. we're going to go to we're going to go to somebody who we all respect who's no longer with us. Here. Yeah, Roger Scruton wrote a book with the the uh, unprovocative title of "Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands: Thinkers of the New Left." And in his introduction, he he, he makes a couple of statements about what the left is. He says, first of all, their program is built around two things. One of them is liberation, and one of them is social justice. Yeah. Okay, so this is what he has to say about liberation. <clears throat> Even those left-wingers who eschew the, liberation, the libertarianism of the 1960s regard liberty as a form of release from social constraints. Much of their literature is devoted to deconstructing such institutions as the family, the school, the law, and the nation-state through which the inheritance of Western civilization has been passed down to us. This literature, seen as at its most fertile in the writings of Foucault, represents as, quote, structures of domination, what others see merely as instruments of civil order. <laughs> Liberation of the victim is a restless cause, since new victims always appear over the horizon as the last ones escape into the void. Okay, so that's liberation. Um, we talked about the difference between liberty and license. This is license, it's not liberty. Uh, Scruton continues, likewise, the goal of social justice is no longer equality before the law or the equal claim to the rights of citizenship, mm -hmm. as these were advocated at the Enlightenment. The goal is a comprehensive rearrangement of society so that privileges, hierarchies, and even the unequal distribution of goods are either overcome or challenged. Behind the goal of social justice, there marches another and more dogged egalitarian mentality which believes that inequality in whatever sphere, property, leisure, legal privilege, social rank, educational opportunities, or whatever else we might wish for ourselves and our children, is unjust until proven otherwise. In every sphere in which the social position of individuals might be compared, equality is the default position. Okay, so that's how it starts. It starts with this idea that Number one, we need to be liberated from any kind of constraints that have been placed on us. Mm -hmm. And further, under any circumstances, equality of outcome has to be the result. Because you see, for example, since all stru family structures are equivalent, if there is a disparity in the way, in the outcomes from different family structures, that must be the result of oppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Which is total nonsense. Yeah, it just may be the result of the fact that your family structure is not in accord with the nature of things, which gets us back to what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. about nature, about transcendence. So what we're dealing with is a sort of sneaky metaphysic mm -hmm. that has a way of sort of insinuating itself or sort of working itself into our theologies, into our sort of way of looking at the world that actually uses something from Christianity 
And that's what I was getting at here. Yeah, it's yeah. something from Christianity as its wedge. Yeah. So I noted earlier, a few moments ago, and it shocked some folks, that in the ancient world, a patriarch would have said and that, you, you're, that you're, you're right. I am the most powerful person in the room, and that's because Zeus has determined <laughs> that I am in charge. And if you don't shut up, you're dead. Yeah, you know? that's right. So that's been the, the, you know, the, the case for a lot of human history. Then we have the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. who comes into the world from outside. Yeah. and reveals to us the fundamental structure of reality, mm-hmm. not an alien sort of imposition, heteronomous mm-hmm. sort of thing and, and the, in the proper way of thinking, but actually a revelation of the divine order and the way things are and the fact that, that you know, in his kingdom that, you know, uh, the Lord washes the feet of his disciples. Now, what's interesting is when he gets up from, you know, washing their feet, uh, he says, you call me Lord and teacher. And then he says, you know what? That's not politically correct. I'm not exactly your Lord. And- <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> I'm just like you guys. We're buddies. We're yeah. just, you know, it's all, no, it's like, yeah. let's have a group hug. It, none of that. And he says, and you're right. I am. Yeah. I am the Lord. And if, if I've done this for you, then who are you to, to say that I do, it doesn't apply to me? So he's actually using authority to... So, so, the, so hierarchy and authority are presupposed to as a means by which to introduce the dignity and the humanity and the, and the, and the recognition of the image of God in everybody around you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes... Uh, you know, there is something introduced that is leveling, but it's all based upon the fact that there's there's some transcendent source for our identity uh, as you know beings, you know, human beings in, made in the image of God, and uh, I think that's presupposed or that's sort of like a kind of present in that whole that whole teaching that yeah. Jesus. And, yeah, and I think what what gets. Um, you know what gets also unleashed there is the you know as as Christ introduces um, the dignity of humans made in the image of God wherever they fall in the social arrangement. Um, what is also happening is the the for Christians called to conformity to Christ is this way of relating to the gift character of all. Um, so he, you'll note you know. There'll be talk of well, whether you're the master or the slave, mm-hmm. treat each other with a certain kind of dignity that doesn't lose hold of that. It doesn't say, okay, just throw everything, become a cause, you know, a communist utopia, and and everyone basically equality outcome. No, it recognizes that the, the social order is going to go through fluctuations until until the finality of the kingdom. But wouldn't you also say, agree that the, there's a distribution of gifts that's uneven? Well, that, yeah, that was the other part, is the gift character also recognizes the differences of gift. I've known some people in my life that are just so amazingly gifted. Yeah. Look, I wherever they walk into the room, I'm, everybody just yeah. s- sort of like says, wow. I, you know, I, one of my, my, my second uh, things in life has been music and guitar. And I've had a certain gift with the instrument, but I clearly don't have the gift that many, many other people from every socioeconomic, every, every kind of background have. Mm-hmm. I don't have it. Mm-hmm. And nor am I sitting here thinking I'm oppressed because I don't have it. I'm actually right. blessed by them having it because yeah. I learned something. That's what's they missing. They give me something. And yes. that giving me something, this is where the non-zero-sum game is, that giving me something shapes and orients what I, what gifts I do have, and that becomes something that I offer to someone else too. And so, it's a, see, what happens is in intersectionality is steep utilitarianism. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's an adversarial utility. It is, it is, that's right. And so the utility is, is basically the power is always only used for the privilege of the one who exercises their gift, you know, or, or capacities or everything else. So in other words, you have to almost suffocate your gift if you happen to have advantages of anyone else. So it, it eliminates culture in the long run. Well, that's the problem. Yes. That's the, that, to me, is the big fear. Yeah. That's the thing that makes me uneasy, deeply uneasy, yeah, yeah. is that we're uh, at a point now where places like 
Oxford mm -hmm. may be uh, saying, you know what, you don't need to read the Iliad, you don't need to read the Odyssey. They're actually doing that in the classics department. That's it. I mean, this, Oxford, is what, yeah. this is where this, 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 this is where it's getting. Yeah, and this is my, you know, no, I did work there back when you had to do work there. You know, <laughs> but now, now, if, now here's here's another thing. Now there is the embarrassment of the fact mm. that uh, there are many cultures in the world who have not uh, been able to produce the same levels of uh, art art or science that other places have. That's just simply the way it is. Yeah. Now, we can play a little game mm -hmm. where we, you know, have a make-believe time where we, you know, uh, think where we create theories of, you know, history or, or false histories that help to explain all this, but we still have the, the reality on the ground. Yeah. And, and we, you know, and it's, it, you know, it's also, you know, there's, there's a, I think, a presumptuousness going on in this that, that goes on with typical Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment visions is that it, it sort of is working as if it has a comprehensive reality understanding that it doesn't have access to. Um, we don't know the significance of certain things even in the created order. I mean, think of the worm whose whole existence is basically to crawl across the road, okay? Does that lose... The fact that that's its whole existence, does that lose its dignity as a creation of God merely because its whole existence is just to live in a dark cave and never come out, or whatever that is? And I don't think that it does. I think what it is is we don't have the antenna to understand the profundity of what that gift is within in the place. Within the whole. The, in, within the whole. Within the whole. And the gift giving. And, and a lot of times we didn't understand that, that you know, a lot of times we always look we look at death under the under the whole notion of sin and and its consequences, but we don't of, often understand that at, there is a profundity of 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 even in the created order after the fall that our, our deaths still are contributing back to the whole. Um, when we go, we leave things behind that other things live off of for a small amount of well, time. Well, here, 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 let, let me yeah. kind of sort of introduce mm -hmm. another sort of uh, sort of. Uh, thread into this. Mm -hmm. Envy. Yeah. Now, uh, I think that envy is... Pro is it, I, I'm, my, my, th my belief, my conviction is envy is the most destructive yeah. of the passions. Yeah. Um, I've seen it work in families. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've conducted about 80 funerals. Mm -hmm. I've seen end-of-life situations that are just ugly, ugly, ugly. And it always comes down to favoritism and envy yeah, yeah. between siblings, between you know different people. I'm going to do the uh, let's see. I'm going to do the stout. Yeah, absolutely. The expressway stout. I'm okay for now. Yeah. Now we're seeing this at a we've seen this at you know mm -hmm. social or societal level with different countries in the world. The killing fields, the cultural revolution, mm. you know, it's always the left where you see this yeah. particular kind of thing. Now, now we do have, you know, the example... And by the way, just as a quick note, the Nazis were leftists. Yes, that's Let's right. Let's be clear here. <laughs> that's, yep. right. that's right. Yeah, they, they read their marks with appreciation. Yeah. And I, I remember I read a book entitled uh, Dedication to Leadership by a Reformed Marxist. And in that book, I think it was that book, he noted that... Uh, that the fascists and the communists regularly recruited from each other. <laughs> Right. That it was, there, was a, there was a very yeah. easy transition. The difference between Hitler and the communists is Hitler was a nationalist, the communists were internationalists. Right. That's really the essence of it. Right. So, anyway, um, the thing I fear is a loss of standards, a loss of values, and a kind of war of all against all, thank you, which is unable to uh, produce a culture that's worth living in. Yeah. That's my that's my great fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know it's it's these people build nothing. They build nothing. Yeah. I've never met a I never met a, a businessman or woman who said you know what I built my business on intersectionality or Marxist yeah. theory or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in, yeah, in, in, and that, that's because again this is something Scruton points out 
That's yeah. because they they don't deal with the concrete. They don't deal with the individual. They just deal with abstractions, with concepts like power relationships and things like that. They don't really deal with anything that you can put your hands on, that you can touch, that you can build, that you can and work com- with. And they're I completely mean, wrong-headed. I mean, I remember Tom Sowell had this, this uh, you know, I, th- I think it was in his, one, of his, one of his many excellent works. Uh, I, I, don't, I think it was called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals or something. A very, yeah, yeah. very uh, telling title. But one of the things he talked about is the way, for example, in, in some of the most real oppressed conditions of the South and the U.S., um, when, when, when genuine, um, you know, racial maltreatment was very much enforced and in action, within that very set of tough circumstances and challenges, you had, it, within the African-American community, especially the, the male community, you had some of the best road builders in the history of the country. And so what ended up having to happen is, especially as things started to change, um, is people who needed roads built had to have business dealings with people who built them better than everyone else. It wasn't a zero-sum game. So these African Americans who had been marginalized in every other way, they got to pick their price. And they actually form business relationships and positive relationships with each other, change the fabric of business relationship, and great roads were built because this capacity and gift was allowed to do what it did and it did it better than everyone else even under the conditions of what people would say marginalized them from being able to, well, to the, exercise well that one of the things about road building is it's hard hard work and you yeah. see the same thing today with a lot of uh, immigrants coming into the country who yeah. are doing really the much the, the very difficult work willing to do hard roofing hard work. that kind can, of thing can i sure quote carol swain who's an african-american oh yeah i know professor she yeah, yeah. Um, she wrote an article on intersectionality and i'm not going to read most of it but i want to just read the last paragraph and this i think speaks to what you're saying <clears throat> excuse me I speak from a personal perspective. By the way, great line to use in intersectionality because it's all about perspective. I speak from a personal perspective as someone who has watched the changes from many vantage points, the changes in culture. I reached my formative years before critical race theory and cultural Marxism gained a dominant foothold. Even though I was born and grew up in rural southern poverty during the era of segregation, I was not taught to hate white people or to hate America. Instead, my black teachers stressed our need to work hard and excel. I grew up to be a proud American who never doubted she lived in the greatest country in the world. No one around me encouraged me to see myself as a victim. I never fixated on the, pack, on the fact that I was black, poor, and female. Had I done so, I doubt I would have achieved anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what you're looking at here is a generation of people who taught their kids that you know, okay, yeah, we we may be we may have have problems here, but you still have to work hard. You still have to apply yourself. You still have to learn. And if you do that, you can do anything. Yeah, or if not anything, at least you can uh, you can achieve some things. Right. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because I do think sort of in, in sort of in the background is sort of the the the, uh, the problem of appearances. Let me let me explain what I mean. We have an ethos which, you know, says you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm like, I don't know, like if I'm like, you know, a midget, I'm not going to play in the NBA. You know, I mean, it's really not in the realm of possibility. Now, there, ha- there are some freaky people in the history of the NBA who were just, you know, Muggsy Bogues and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. guys like that, who were, were short but had incredible athleticism. But interestingly, before you finish intersectionality and this vision would basically almost be that everyone needs to basically play on their knees if it's the case. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That it's privileging. Right. Yeah. That's right. So so what you end up at? Well, it gets us, gets us to, uh, oh, what's that? Harrison Bergeron. Remember Harrison Bergeron? Are you familiar with the story of Harrison Bergeron? I don't know. Oh, who was it who wrote that? Uh, Anyways, I, uh, it, it rings a bell, but I can't pull it out. Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut. So let me tell the story. Now that I brought it up, I have to tell the story. Right? right. So it's a short story. It basically goes like this. Harrison Bergeron is the most talented, good-looking, strongest man in the world. 
he's public enemy number one, <laughs> simply because of his natural giftedness. Yeah. So he, he, he so what they what they've done is they've created a society. They've continued to to, to you know add to you know our a bill of rights, you know, a list of amendments, all these different things, and now it's mandatory that we're all equal. So that means, of course, that highly intelligent people have to be brought down to the as low as possible, so that people who have no ability or can't be helped to achieve, you know, won't be at a disadvantage. Harrison Bergeron has an IQ of 200. He's like six foot four. He's he's incredibly good looking. He's incredibly muscular. He's incredibly so he's in in prison, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and he's forced to wear like a clown outfit with a with a rubber nose. <laughs> and he's he's forced to wear these uh, headphones, which which every like five seconds send uh, signals through his brain to disrupt his thoughts, so that he can't think. You know, can't string together. Any, anyway, he breaks out. He breaks out and he, and he, and he finds his way to the uh, public television station or to a television station where this really horrendous ballet is going on where people are, are dancing with these weights, <laughs> these lead weights on their, on their waists and their feet so that they can't be too graceful. <laughs> and uh, he, he rips off the, the earphones and he rips off all the stuff and he says, I am Harrison Bergeron, I am emperor of the world. <laughs> and then at that point he's shot. Uh, there's a... Uh, Diana Moonglampers, who is the handicapper general, <laughs> has got a shotgun. <laughs> and you know, just the way she's described that she's that she's a dyke, and she's just blowing him away. <laughs> that's the power balance, right there. But, that, but Harrison Bergeron is a story uh, that, uh, that's basically the the the, uh, the obscenity, the absurdity of intersectionality, sort of played out in a in a what was. A humorous story, but at the end, hmm. I believe at the end of his life, I, I, if I, I can't give you a time or day, or but it's, I remember hearing that that Vonnegut said something to the effect that I thought it was a story. Yeah, I thought that I was just having a little fun. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I, um, it's a lot there. Uh, I'm going to take it a small, different direction, only because uh, it, it just came to mind something that a lot of people may not realize. Um, Nietzsche um, would have had a field day with this because he would have seen this basically as a bunch of people trying to steal something from Christianity they have no legitimate claim to. Um, Nietzsche played no games with, if, if you want to bite the nominalist, you know, uh, vision, then you need to go where it ends up. And you can't end up with this half-baked humanism and justice and fairness in a world in which there isn't. That's right. The reality of a judge. That's what I was getting at trend. earlier. Yeah, yeah they say they've stolen the Christian vision. Stealing. That's right. And so what we have here, and Nietzsche tells the story this way, he was angry at Christianity because it produced what he basically called the slave revolt. It dignified the marginalized. It dignified those who had no power. It saw the image of God in all those who were what you know the rest of the world called weak. So in this sense, intersectionality wants to pick up on that and then bring that into another thing. The problem is it doesn't take the real Christian doctrine of humanity with it, nor the, the redemptive vision or the vision of creation and created moral order. It's, it's a, almost a Gnostic interpretation of it, and I don't have yeah. time to get into yeah. that. But when, what ends up happening is they want us to apply issues like terms like justice and human dignity but they don't have the, the theological fabric under it for us to do it. It only works if Christianity is, genu is the genuine article. Right, right. If, if it isn't, then any talk of this kind of stuff doesn't matter anyway. But the minute you get into understanding creation, created moral order and redemption, their vision falls flat. And so what they basically want to do is, is use the Christian dignity of all human beings in its in 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 morality, in order to shame what what Nietzsche called the the strongest in society, and so it basically is to slow down the strongest in society, stop their evolutionary progress by basically guilt consciousing. That's what Nietzsche calls it. So you play to the guilt of the strongest, and what that does is it allows for the strongest to identify now with the weakest, and it allows the weakest to advance in power, strength, and it, it is built steep, steeped in an evolutionary vision of power, right? 
Um, and so, but it's reinterpreted Christianity through an evolutionary model of power, right? The one who has the power to survive and determine its own existence. So the strongest has to take the back seat. The, the intersectionally marginalized gets to take the front seat. And now it can, without the fear of the strongest determining its evolution, it's allowed to drive its own evolutionary ship. And Nietzsche said nonsense. What, the re, what, what is going to result from this is the ubermensch is going to rise. And this is what we've always talked about, kind of the dark web world and the alternative other. Right. And that's, that's where I was going to go. It is what yeah. intersectionality does is, 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 is Nietzsche, of all people, prophetically so, it creates the very conditions for the reaction of the group of people who don't care about anything to do with genuine Christian justice. And what they're going to look at is this is a threat to their evolutionary survival, and they're going to come after this group with all of their power to eliminate it. And they know how to do it. They know how to do it, and they will do it, and they're ready to do it. They've so, always been ready. So there's um, a guy that I, uh, I know through Facebook who's a remarkable guy, um, Mark MacYoung. Um, he... Um, he uh, I'll take a, a cider. Cider? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got it here, so I'll go with that. I got one stout. We'll go with the cider this time. Um, the, um, but w- one of the things that he, a point I've seen him make multiple times, is that when you look at the hard left and the hard right, the difference between the two when it comes to violence isn't that one's violent and the other isn't. They're both violent. Yeah. But what he calls the savage right. Um, the difference between them is that is quali- quantity versus quality. The hard left engages in rioting and things like that on a large scale. They get the quantity award. When the hard right blows, the savage right, as he calls it, when they go, they have the knowledge and the skills to produce a massive body count. Well, I remember the uh, the courthouse in uh, in was it Oklahoma? Yeah, Oklahoma City. Yeah, the yeah. bombing of Oklahoma City. Yeah, this, that, uh, this, that, that's what that's what the savage right does, and what the intersectionality people don't get is that for most of us, we're basically decent people. We may disagree with them, but we're not going to go blowing up buildings. But what they're doing is they're creating the conditions yeah, where people who aren't it's it's Nietzsche, yeah. where people who aren't quite. But well, this gets me back though, to, to, going to do it. But this gets me back to, a little bit uh, to the to, to the whole med- sort of discussion of ability. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh, he was the guy, right? Yeah. yeah. So what you had here was a guy who was able to study chemistry, able to sort of uh, just sort of uh, do the research that was required to understand the the explosive uh, power of manure. Yeah. It was fertilizer. So, so you know, there is Thank nobody you. that I've ever come across in the women's, you know, studies <laughs> department that gives me any fear at, at any level at all when it comes to that sort of thing. These are people who knit, yeah. you know, and and frankly, bitch. That. <laughs> That's it. That's all they know how to do. And yeah. a guy like Timothy McVeigh is on the internet saying, "Wow, you can do that with with fertilizer." That could blow up an entire city block. I could, I could make one of those in my garage. Yeah, and he did. In so other words, so what are you, you going to do? Are you going to yeah. outlaw fertilizer? And when, when the symbolism gets to where, and this is what I'm talking about, what Nietzsche was talking about with, with the, with the survival of the fittest. When, when within that, within that understanding of the world, when a group is feeling threatened and blamed for everything, it is only a couple of steps before when. Because these people are not going to grant you your well, but, but humanistic... This, but this gives me back to my point. Yeah. Ability yeah. is real. Yeah. It's not socially constructed. There are some people who are more capable than other people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, those people can be either challenged to bring those yeah. abilities into the service yeah. of the weak and their neighbors. Well, yeah. yeah. Or they can just be uh, allowed to do whatever they please with it. And then there's a third option, which is this. This is the kind of like, well, I'm gonna, I just don't care about you people anymore. You know, the the thing that I, that really strikes me about this, in a lot of ways, is let's go to your real hardcore racists. Let's go with someone like an Adolf Hitler. Hitler's point was that you know one of the things that drove Hitler 
was the idea that the, well, this pseudo-scientific anthropology that said that the Aryans were mm -hmm. the most evolved perfect humans and all that sort of thing. Okay, But leaving that aside, he, what he set, claimed was going on is that the other inferior races out of anger at or jealousy of the German race, the Aryan race, were trying to deprive them of their rights, trying to suppress them, and ultimately trying to destroy them. Yes. And if you, if you think even something close to that and look at intersectionality, what's your right. reaction going to be? Sure, sure. And, and coupled with it, he was very versed in Nietzsche, and they understood that it was Judaism and by Judaism Christianity that introduced and this kind of sinister plot to stop the progress of the, the, the strongest by guilting it into, and so it saw in a very negative light Jews and Judaism as part of that which was un trying to undermine the, in, 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 in a sense, because there, there is a genuine way in which theology does undermine worldly power and, and its association with this kind of power associated with Darwinism. Um, and and uh, and it does. It is a threat to that, but it's a threat to it not in a way that hinders the actual development. It actually f fosters in the kingdom of God. It's a whole different thing. But mm -hmm. I, I guess yeah. The, yeah. I know we're we're getting kind of to the point yeah. where we ought to start wrapping well, up. But wait a minute. There's an important point to be made here. Yeah. What the intersectionality people are doing, in a nutshell, is they're fulfilling Hitler's paranoia. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and I think the thing that I, that when we get back, one of the one of the things that's uh, a question that's begged, a question that's begged with regard to intersectionality is the, is the question of justice. What is justice? So justice is presumed to be an absolute even distribution of goods right. and rewards mm -hmm. regardless of ability, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And we, know, we know where that comes from. But that it may not be expressed that way, but that's the assumption underlying all this. But there is a different kind of injustice. There's the injustice that... Uh, fails to be uh, to give uh, reward for just dessert so let's so let's just let's let's, let's play a little as this will be my last thing um, a little thought experiment okay we're gonna have tug-of-war we're gonna have and this tug-of-war is just for fun we're gonna take half of the campground and put them over here and half of the campground and put them over there and uh, we're gonna string a you know a rope between the two and on the group on the left you're right there's a 400-pound man who is a world, you know, uh, strongman <laughs> competitor. And uh, wouldn't you know, that's the team that wins. And as the reward, you know, for, the, for winning, they each get a $10 prize. <laughs> each, uh, each of the 30 people who were involved in the tug-of-war team that won gets that prize, including the guy who arguably is worth 20 people. Who single-handedly <laughs> actually won. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, you might be able to get away with that once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You might be able to get away with it twice. Mm -hmm. But third time, what's going to happen? The guy's going to say, either I get more or I don't play. Yeah. Yeah. That's the world we're creating. Yeah. Where, we're, where the truly able are, are going to say, if I don't get more, I don't play. I have yeah. shrugged. That's right. I'm just heading up into the woods. Yeah. I'm going to live all by myself in a cabin. I can do that. I'm a man who knows how to kill things. <laughs> I'm a man who knows how to build a cabin. Yeah. I don't need you people. Yeah. In fact, I'd rather live in the quiet of the woods mm -hmm. than have to put up with you. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. And if you don't leave me alone... Yeah. You're going to be hurt. I do know how to kill things. <laughs> that's, yes. right. that's right. No, that's, that's right. Well, it's interesting. In, 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 in Scripture, you have two different episodes. On the one, you have Christ before Pontius Pilate. And I always baffled by the profundities going on there. But, but uh, you know, and then you have this literal statement. You know, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Right? I am in this most privileged place to execute justice. Um, don't you realize who you're talking to? And in a way, interestingly, Jesus, don't you realize who you're That's talking right, right, to? Right. I am not in the place that you are in terms of human conditions at this moment. But ontologically, I am in a position in which, do you know who you're talking to? Mm -hmm. And it's funny that Pontius Pilate finds his name into the creed. I, that, that's another mm -hmm. most fascinating. 
But the other thing is that you don't have any power over me unless my Father in heaven is granted it. Mm -hmm. And so there is many cases in which we have orders of power, both in a sinful fallen world and one being being restored and redeemed, in which I, I simply don't have myself as a human being control over. But the Sovereign Lord does and has ordered it in such a way that that is not outside of the sovereign purposes of God and, and, and for my own good. And so what may look like marginalization and, marginalization and exclusion, even though it doesn't mean we don't fight for justice and all these things and the right understanding of these things, but it's also the conditions for the very way in which God is soul-making so that I am actually formed into who God has created me to be. I think of the limits on my life in terms of power as the very things that have shaped me to be the soul that I am. And so if everyone has sheer access and you flatten out anything that is different, you, you, you aren't, first of all, you aren't promoting diversity as they like to, but secondly, you're losing all of the gifts of qualification that are required to become what we're created to be and God's purposes in the world. But on the other side, here's another story. What about the owner who hires the person early in the day and says, look, you work my land, I'm gonna pay you 30 bucks. You work the whole day. Well, at the end of the day, find someone else who, who, who needs to kind of finish the job and says, you know what, if you come here and work for a half hour, I'm gonna pay you 30 bucks. And the other guy says, whoa, whoa, wait, this is unjust. How dare you? You're, you're privileged, you know, this person's only working a half hour, I've worked all day. And the response is, you're not lord of this domain. This isn't yours to decide what to do with and how it works out. The key is both people are being blessed and offered something and they're offered a place in something that is a beautiful thing. If the only thing you can see is what you get for yourself in this, you're missing the picture. This is, this is a, it's a whole different way of... of, of well, and I'm with you on yeah. 100% with that, but remember yeah. the horse yeah. in Animal Farm. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. See, that, that yeah. point that you made is absolutely right. Yeah. But uh, often uh, there is a, a failure to recognize unequal contributions. Yeah, yeah. So if you remember Animal Farm, yeah. you know, the horse... Believes in the, in you know in the, in yeah. the vision of the of the pigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he works himself debt into to death, yeah. and no one else in on the farm is able to produce at the level that he's able to produce. Yeah. But uh, there's no sense in which any of his contribution is recognized, except at a uh, actually the other people who are working alongside him yeah. did. Yeah. See, but this is the kind of reality that intersectionality obscures yeah. it's it's an ideal it's an ideological outlook which has a way of filtering out elements of reality that don't sort of find ways of fitting in yeah. to it yeah nice. so, so anything you want to say as we conclude there Glenn yeah well my main concern with all of this is really within the church yeah uh, the fact that there are so many groups so many seminaries so many formerly solidly biblical evangelical type organizations that are buying into intersectionality at, not as a you know as as a as a tool as a critical tool mm-hmm. to analyze the culture and to respond to it if you if you use intersectionality as a critical tool what you are doing is you are adopting a whole set of anti-christian non-biblical assumptions that are essential if intersectionality is actually true and useful. Mm-hmm. And there are so many groups that are doing this right now. They're just sort of buying onto a major big deal lie from the secular society. We have the resources to deal with these problems within the Christian tradition. We don't need ideas drawn from uh, critical theory, Marxism, postmodernism, all of these things which are really at the root of what's going on within, um, within the um, intersectionality thing. It is just a, it is a disastrous move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Any thoughts, uh, Thomas? Yeah, and I think Glenn's point earlier is this, you know, in a sense, if, if, 
especially in relation to the church, if you're if you've already bought into the this worldly becoming the most significant, and basically eternity is nothing more than an extension of merely this worldliness. Um, you basically have a naturalism and an and a exclusive humanism, and therefore this kind of project makes sense. Um, if you that you have to bury the whole e Christian um, transcend, transcendental vision in order for this to kind of have any kind of claim whatsoever. Um, we can spell that out at a different time, but I, I really think that if if the whole game is to game this world. And this makes sense. If the game is to give up all and follow Christ, then this, this doesn't make sense at all. Because the whole point is you are leaving behind your claim on this worldliness. And therefore, you are taking on a whole different relationship to power. That doesn't exclude the other things we're talking about. There are different gifts, different abilities that are going to execute themselves and benefit. Um, and those are what Scripture called blessings, even on the unrighteous. You have those that have been blessed with great talents that, that are gifts from God, and they get to participate in those in ways we get a benefit from, but we don't get to share. Right. And it's not wrong that they have that, and this was my point about the field, it's that you know wherever I came into the picture, I was given the blessing for what it is that I'm to do. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Get, get, let me throw one more thing in. Let me, let me just ask a question. Let's assume critical theory is correct, and fundamentally... The only reality that we have access to is power. Right. Why would anyone want to give that up? Sure. If right. you are somebody with power, why wouldn't you want to hold on to it? And what would be wrong with you wanting to do it? Their entire assumption here is a formula for essentially civil war. Well, it, it demonstrates the naivete of many of these right. people. They, they, they just most of the people I've ever I've, I've come across who really embrace this stuff wholeheartedly mm. are not really bright. Yeah, I've never really impressed with their intelligence yeah. and, and the way they've absorbed basically what we talked about earlier is 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 a nominalistic notion that power defines deity and defines humanity. And they, of course, imbibe yeah. that from the culture. They've never, that's right. They don't even, they, they don't even know those, the debates. Yeah, that's right. They, they, they just, uh, they just yeah. assume that's kind of the, the way things work. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on that happy thought, <laughs> why don't we wrap it up? We're actually uh, a little longer than we normally go. But uh, thank you very much for listening to the Theology Pugcast. We uh, really do appreciate uh, your interest and support. And by the way, when it comes to support, you can become a, a, a member of CrossPolitik, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And uh, if you do that, you have the ability to designate the Theology Podcast as your favorite show. <laughs> and then you do that, uh, we, uh, we get some re uh, remuneration that helps us uh, to produce the show. But anyway, that's it for that. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.